0: A college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for the 94th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Woke Capitalism, Not What You Think It Is. I'm joined by Carl Rhodes. He is the author of Woke Capitalism How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. The publisher is Bristol University Press. Carl is professor of organization studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. There he researches the ethical and democratic dimensions of business and work. Carl regularly writes for the mainstream and independent press, alike on issues related to ethics, politics, and the economy. Welcome to the show, Carl.
1: It's a delight to be here, Dan.
0: Excellent. So uh, let's launch right in. Can you tell us briefly about the book? Give us a bit of an overview, as it were.
1: Yeah. So the book is about this contemporary phenomenon that's come to be known, uh, come to be called woke capitalism. You know, it's the kind of thing that we've seen in uh, Nike's support for Colin Kaepernick and the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Gillette's engagement with toxic masculinity and the debates around around Me Too through through its advertising. So these are kind of examples where we see corporations who are you know traditionally more just focus on economic issues becoming very much more politicized and publicly supporting positions that are often associated with uh, the progressive side of politics or even the left wing side of politics. So this is the phenomenon called woke capitalism. Um, and so the book explores this. Many people, uh, the most common criticism of woke capitalism is that they disagree with the progressive politics of of, of uh, these corporations. My view, and, and the view that's represented in, in the book, is actually different to that. Uh, it is written from a progressive point of view, but it asks uh, readers to think about how woke capitalism actually might be a threat to progress and democracy by by uh, putting us on a political trajectory where private corporate interests uh, increasingly take over the agenda of public life and what this means for, for the democratic promise of social and economic equality and uh, shared prosperity.
0: Okay, so I want to talk in a bit about the, the present circumstances and even project into the future a bit. But let me go backwards in the time just a little bit first seems to me we need to set the context a bit and talk about neoliberalism mm-hmm. and Milton Friedman. And maybe my first question is, his 1962 book, as you mentioned in your book, is called Capitalism and Freedom. And I have to ask you the pointed question, whose freedom is he talking about?
1: Well, uh, this is a very interesting point, because, I mean, if you look at at, at Friedman from 1962 and then his famous uh, article from the 70s uh, about corporate social responsibility and the only responsibility uh, of businesses that of, of, uh, is a responsibility to shareholders or to, or to the owners of businesses. So, I mean, in many ways, the take-up of Friedman um, has been about the freedom of corporations and the freedom of, of the market. Um, and of course, a lot of things have changed since the 60s. Um, with neoliberalism, we've seen really a lot of the views of Friedman, who was an advisor to, to Ronald Reagan, for example, um, uh, the, these kind of ideas really be fully implemented and, and a kind of free market approach to, to economics, a free market approach also then to politics and a push for small government, really eroding a lot of the social protections that, that came, came before it, whether that be a kind of European style uh, welfare state or even, you know, what was still in place in terms of the uh, the implementation of the New Deal in the United States, and really erosion of this. So you have increasing freedom um, for corporations through deregulation, through a reduction in taxation, all which have happened, um, uh, as well as as reduction in taxation for for rich people. So it, it would appear that the the real freedom is is uh, is to people, people, and institutions that have uh, wealth and money.
0: Okay, and and one other writer that I wanted to bring in here, the inevitable Adam Smith.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, another pointed question: at, at what point does the invisible hand uh, risk becoming a white gloved fist?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. The invisible hand slapping a lot of people in the face. Uh, but there is, of course, a difference between, between Smith and Friedman is that Smith, writing, you know, uh, much uh, hundreds of years earlier, still uh, felt that there would be, to quote from the title of one of his books, um, a kind of moral sentiment uh, involved in commercial yes. activity and that even though uh, businesses are there to, to pursue self-interest and don't necessarily directly um, uh, uh Pursue the interests of other people. There was still the idea that there was an underlying moral base of society that would influence the direction, and in a sense that would influence the so-called invisible hand. I mean, the version that that we see more recently comes not from uh, from economists like uh, Friedman or Smith, but more from Hollywood, where we have uh, the Gordon Gecko character from the Wall Street movie in the nineteen eighties, where. The only moral sentiment that remains is the one that says that greed is good, um, uh, and that really then became a significantly problem. You mentioned neoliberalism before, and this becomes a new form of 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 liberty, a new form of of liberalism, which is just freeing up individual people to pursue their own interests without caring about anybody else. Um, uh, and in a sense, that's uh, an important. Uh, signpost uh, on the trajectory of, of how we got to where we are today. Yeah, no, and
0: I, I think now we'll move toward the present because, you know, this come up several times in your book as I was moving through it, and it's an excellent book, by the way, for all of our listeners. Uh, you bring up a term that I remember first noticing in uh, the book Surveillance Capitalism, mm. and that is that we are almost at a point where she argued, and I think you're arguing, we're, we're at risk of what could be called neo-feudalism.
1: Yeah. You
0: maybe want to elucidate on that a bit. Yeah,
1: certainly. I mean, one of the main arguments that I make in the book is that, is that what we see with woke capitalism is a shift in power from democratic institutions to economic institutions. And so if we think of the, the uh, you know, important distinction between the public and the private sphere and the different interests, this is kind of you know, fundamental to, to democratic thinking. And that there is a separation. Um, uh, there is a separation. So the things that are public and the things that are private, and economic matters and political matters, are, are dealt with in this way. But as you see, corporations, as well as particular individuals uh, who who own the uh, own them, becoming increasingly powerful and increasingly encroaching on the public sphere, we see a, a shift then in in. The location of power, and this shift is similar to what we would have seen in feudal societies. And if you think of it in terms of the U.S., it was an escape from this feudalism that was very, you know, part of the very foundation of the the, the promise of the United States—the idea that we don't have to be um, uh, victims or reliant on on the on the whims and the decisions of people. Uh, who are wealthy, uh, an aristocracy, and instead that sovereignty, the 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 basis of the rule of society, lies within the people, and this idea of popular sovereignty is the basis of democracy. But when you have wealthy individuals starting to con uh, to control the world more and more, then you seem to have something that's becoming to look a lot more like the kind of feudalism uh, that, that preceded democracy. And in a sense, or you could call it plutocracy if you, if you, if you like, but it's uh, economic power which is determining politics rather than uh, the rule of the people as the very basis of democracy.
0: And, um, you know, so, yes, the U.S. has an immigrant, you know, tradition. Uh, Australia does as well. Uh, Barack Obama, you know, famously had lived in Indonesia. Yeah. As well as, uh, you know, his time in in, uh, Hawaii as a youth. Why do you think Barack Obama, if these forces have been gathering for for 40 years under, you know, the influence of Friedman and others? uh, Just a question I had to ask. what, What would be your take as to why Obama didn't maybe speak up more. Were these forces just so powerful? He needed the money for re-election campaign. Uh, It's his temperament not to go there so much and be confrontational. Mm -hmm. In any sense of what was going on there?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I remember him uh, speaking up um, at the time of the global financial crisis in the late 2000s and and being fairly... uh, Damning to the uh, the bosses of car manufacturing companies who flew on private jets to to meet him in the middle of in the middle of the crisis. So there were some times where he did speak up, but generally uh, not so much. And I think it's probably. The time since, in the last forty years, since the big, you know, I mean, the big kind of juncture um, of of Reagan's presidency in the United States and Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership in in the United Kingdom, again associated with the with 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 neoliberalism, really changed politics. So, I mean, you know, a very much shift rightwards um, in the way of politics, where where any more kind of radical ideas. Um, uh, seemed incredibly radical, and where you have a you have a democratic party in, in in the United States, which really resembles what would have previously been called very much more of a, a centrist kind of position. So I think Obama was part of that um, uh, was was part of that tradition, or, or sorry, that 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 trajectory in in U.S. politics. Um, which was very much linked in to, to corporations, which was very much tied up with what was once called the Washington Consensus and the views around small government and the views about reduced taxation. And in a sense, there became less difference between the so-called right and left in politics or in the US, the Republicans and the Democrats. And I think Obama was was located in that uh in that process as well, but he did speak up from time to time, but it didn't become a, a, a standard element of his his political rhetoric.
0: Yeah, no, I asked a question in part because I don't remember the the uh, book's title offhand, but it was a account of his presidency, and it mentioned someone who was on Long Island, quite wealthy, you know, uh, you know, a uh, private equity sort of uh, baron, and had supported Obama in part because they this person feared that if there wasn't some Uh, greater justice that the whole thing would just blow up and it was better to have a safety valve and that Obama maybe would be that moderating voice that could make some adjustments so that the system didn't, you know, eat its young, so to speak. But the book ends or come very close to the end of the book. uh, Obama calls this person and because he's come to realize that Obama's not likely to change anything, uh, he doesn't take the phone call from the president. He oh, simply stays on his yacht and I'm, declines to take the phone call.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I wasn't uh, aware aware of that. But, I mean, yeah, the safety valve theory is is an interesting thing. And and in a sense, arguably, the lack of the safety valve and the kind of inequalities that have been produced globally and including in, in the United States and the kind of disenfranchisement you see of people who uh, have been... Uh, the losers, on uh, as a result of kind of neoliberal reforms, and the losers as a result of widening inequalities and in the growth of the uh, the billionaire class, um, uh, you know, led to the kind of political populism that that enabled Trump to be elected. I mean, that's a you know not a, an uncommon kind of perspective there. And even when Joe Biden became president, at the very beginning, I you know I, I do follow this for even from from afar as an observer. Um, much of his rhetoric. I mean, at the beginning, I thought he was sounding almost Rooseveltian in his uh, yes. in kind of things that, that he was saying. Um, and so maybe that's picking up now. But but um, in terms of real changes that have been made, I think, uh, you know, we've still got to wait and see what happens as a result of the Biden presidency.
0: Sure. Um, sticking with current affairs, uh, the Beijing Olympics are about to start. Mm. Uh, there is some debate, although it's Relatively muted about U.S. corporations who are sponsors and advertisers at the Olympics, given China's uh, civil rights or lack of civil rights record. Um, You know, of course, that uh, President Xi is pushing this idea of common prosperity. Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether you would see that as uh, as a bit of a hoax, like woke capitalism or it's a little more authentic or just kind of what's your take on on that theme and uh i guess if you want to mention the beijing olympics by all means
1: yeah i mean the notion of common prosperity or, or actually a term that i've been using for for a while is shared prosperity so it did it did make me think when i heard of uh, this common prosperity i mean and that is very much a uh, an important dimension i mean in terms of the politics of china i mean that's just so uh so great. It's kind of hard, hard to comment on, on, on that in more general terms. I mean, if we look specifically at the relationship between, uh, the, uh, woke well, capitalism and China and Beijing is one example and the thoughts of boycott and so forth are another. But I mean, one of the stories that I, that I tell in the book was where, where someone from the, um, NBA, I think it was. Or was it, uh, could have Le- the NBA. LeBron
0: James. LeBron James. Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, oh, LeBron. But, but it started with one of the coaches who made some comments about uh, the democracy. Um, uh, yeah, you know, general, man- uh,
0: general manager of the Houston Rockets at the time. Yes. That's
1: the guys. <laughs> yeah, you've read my book more recently than me. Um, <laughs> uh, he made a comment about uh, about the democracy protests in, in uh, Hong Kong. Um, which was perfectly aligned with the kind of woke capitalist stuff that was developing then and the changing position of the NFL after all of that that uh, protest with Trump and so forth about Kaepernick's uh, uh, kneeling. But obviously China is also a huge market for American sports um, and the NBA particularly, um, and all of these comments were withdrawn fairly quickly when uh, it was seen that there was going to be a negative economic impact. So this is an interesting story about what's really what's really driving this. Is it the kind of moral political conviction um, or is it the interest in, in corporate self-interest and corporate uh, profitability? And that was a perfect example that said, well, as soon as profitability was at stake, the moral positions were... Uh, were were quickly uh forgotten and even in the case of um, and as you say lebron james is also involved and there were people on the streets in hong kong uh burning uh burning his his uh basketball uniform Jersey. yeah um, and and say and saying you know that uh, chinese lives matter as well particularly at that case in hong kong where there was a was a big uh, issues about uh oppression and so forth from china
0: Sure, and in Hong Kong, of course, the you know, it was the young people often in the streets, talking, and and so I know in my own readings, I'm really curious about uh, what might be your perspective on Gen Z, and you know, right now in the U.S. at least, they're they're seen as generally a bit more liberal, progressive, certainly activist. Yeah, they're they're more multicultural, more more multi ethnic. Uh, I think actually, you know, America is going to soon be a, a majority minority country. And they are part of that picture. Do you think that's going to stick? Or is this a case like David Brooks somewhat mocking the boomers having really had the counterculture come down to Whole Foods as its one (laughs) outpost in the end? I mean, do you have any sense of whether that's got staying power or this is just a waxing and waning?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we can only hope so. I mean, there seems to be some genuine change. Um, If I look, you know, I'm a university professor, if I look at the students uh, entering now, they seem to be much more politically aware, much more conscious, sometimes in relatively superficial ways, as you might expect, as people are still uh, maturing, Um, but much more politically conscious and aware um, uh, than even would have been the case with the students coming in 10 years ago. You know, this is the, the Greta Thunberg generation. These are kids who a couple of years ago would have been striking from school climate change so i think there is a change will they go the way of of the boomers and uh you know the the hippie ideal gets uh gets um translated into uh into things that it it was never meant to be it's possible but then again if i look at myself i'm 54 my generation is the generation who who's lived through the, the beginning of, of uh, neoliberalism. I was a university student in the 1980s when everything was starting with Reagan and Thatcher. We haven't been able to do anything successfully, and this is really a sign of failed leadership. So I think it's really important that we look at the next generation for hope uh, and look at the next generation's uh, capacity to build a new political imagination in a way that my generation has failed to do.
0: Sure. And um, I'm going to go to the corporations next. Um, You know, my take and kind of my own thoughts as well as uh, obviously spurred by what I was reading in your book, I was really trying to think about why are the corporations, at least in some cases, I'm sure it's not uniform, you know, moving this direction. And I guess the two things I came up with, one had to do with branding and wanting not to alienate consumers. I know in the U.S., uh, the states that vote blue are about 70 percent of the U.S. economy. Mm. Um, the other thing is, where am I going to find my skilled workers? If I'm in a war for talent, isn't it possible that I want you know the university students and maybe the better ones? And if they tilt, activists and liberal, those are the people I want in the corporate ranks. And that seemed to me, at least, you know, leaving aside other factors, um, that seemed to me at least two broad-based drivers for companies to me. Because one is I need to sell my goods, and Second, I need someone to help produce them and and you know originate them. Um, any any take or perspective or ways you want to build on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you. I think that is absolutely one of the reasons, um and that people, you know increasingly young people do want to work for organizations they can identify with, and that they you know, in a sense feel a sense of pride. Um, and even if you look at you know the reason pe- the so-called great resignation that that's occurring at the moment, often it's just uh, you know uh, disenfranchisement from the whole idea of corporations. So it, that is certainly an important part. I mean, if you le- read the uh, the more virulent um, uh, kind of uh, critics on this, you know, they seem to be suggesting that uh, that um, uh, you know that. Uh, that Corporations have somehow become become uh, have fallen victim to, uh, to the word that Marco Rubio used was Marxist mobs that dominate the internet and Hollywood. I mean that sort of explanation I think we can dismiss altogether. I think the idea that CEOs are somehow weak willed individuals, easy prey for uh, uh, for people on the radical left is is kind of silly. I think a more another explanation to add to yours, however, is that. And this is is that if corporations can portray themselves in this particular way as being socially conscious, as as being responsible, it's also a way of uh, forestalling government regulation. So in a sense, it's a strange extension of neoliberalism, which has always focused on free markets and deregulation, which has caused so many uh, of the problems that, that we see today, particularly economic inequality. So it can also, another political move is about forestalling encroaching regulation as we see these problems. So if organizations position themselves as part of the solution, um, uh, then perhaps they don't need to be regulated as much. So again, it's kind of a um, self-interested rationale uh, with that argument as well.
0: No, no, I would certainly agree. One of my favorite books is uh, The Rich and the Super Rich by a former Columbia professor written in the 1960s. And it really talked about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> that unfortunately, some of the corporations tended to be serial criminals in terms of antitrust uh, violations as well as anti-labor violations. Mm. Uh, and that's really that's really you know dampened down uh, as as the companies have uh, you know pushed their lobbying efforts and the politicians need lots of money here in the u s. to run for elections. Um, you know those kinds of cases brought to trial, et cetera, really becomes a rarity.
1: And I think what's part of that as well, if you look at the type of issues that corporations support, they're most commonly social issues. Um, you know, uh, I mean, important social issues around racism, around gender. You know, through Black Lives Matter, me too, as I as I mentioned earlier, um, about issues of equality, really important issues, but. The things that you hear corporations talk much less about are more fundamental issues of economic inequality. We don't see uh, so-called woke corporations standing up to talk about corporate tax avoidance and its effect on the ability of the state to support public services. You know, rapidly expanding and extortionate levels of CEO pay and executive remuneration they're almost, well, not almost, they are entirely absent from the woke capitalist agenda. The minimum wage comes in sometimes, but very rarely uh, discussed as a woke capitalist issue. Universal basic income, progressive taxation, and distribu- distributive justice. These are the issues that you would really more associate traditionally with a progressive or left politics. Um, uh, but corporations tend to stick mainly to the social issues that aren't necessarily going to threaten them economically, which is why we can see that that the idea that corporations entering into this politics is going to lead to any any fundamental progress um, is, is very unlikely. It's really the corporations just you, just playing into this for a different, uh, a different set of reasons that don't undermine the basis of the economic system that we live in.
0: Yeah, no, that was very much the point. Also, another book recently, Davos Man by a New York Times writer. And it includes a uh, kind of a depiction of some of the behavior and uh, language, maybe you want to call it rhetoric, even from the Salesforce company's CEO. But yet, yes, tax evasion and <clears throat> parking you know, intellectual IP overseas to pay lower rates is also part of the corporate strategy involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm familiar with that book, too. I mean, and the whole thing about the Davos man, this kind of super rich uh, um, cosmopolitan uh, uh, corporate person, it is all about the free market being the solution uh, to everything um, and including including the, the solution to social problems. So, again, the role of government gets a bit lost in here and not just government as an elected government, but the role of the state and the state's institutions if everything is left to the goodwill of uh, the rich, of which the Davos man as a, as a character. And we say man in a non-sexist way because almost everyone who goes to the Davos conference is a man. Um, and almost all of the world's billionaires are also men. It is an issue of uh, masculinity is central to this um, as well. Um, but it's always looking at market, market solutions based on the preferences of the wealthy. Again, sounds a lot like feudalism to me.
0: Yeah, I I must confess, by the time I got done with your book, I I thought back longingly to Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address saying, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Instead, I finished the book and I was thinking about Animal Farm and George Orwell commenting that some of the pigs were more equal than others.
1: I know. And I think this is part of um, the idea of the book as well. It's about I don't have a solution to get out of this, and I'm not going to come up with it. And as I said, I think that's to the next generation of people with imagination beyond mine. But part of it is looking forward, but part of it is also looking back at those fundamental promises of democracy, um, the fundamental promises of, of of the sovereign rule of the people, the fundamental uh, promises of freedom, equality, and solidarity across community. I think too often... These days, democracy, and it happens particularly in the US, becomes associated with freedom and ideas of personal freedom. And the idea that that the tension between freedom and equality as a central tension that needs to be worked through through democracy often gets forgotten. So I think we need to remember those original promises and Abe Lincoln being a a perfect um, example of that. The original promises of democracy and how can they be revived? Um, uh, for the problems of the 21st century, particularly problems of political and economic inequality.
0: I think that's an excellent way to leave it. I want to thank you, Carl, so much for your time. Uh, This has been episode number 94, Woke Capitalism, Not What You Think It Is. My guest, Carl Rhodes, he is the author of Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network and go to its website and search under the program's name. That's, of course, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you can find those additional episodes. Finally, I like to conclude every show with an epigram. In this case, I couldn't resist one from Lord Acton. He is the person who most famously said, Power tends to corrupt. Absolutely absolute power corrupts absolutely, but he also said this, in every age, liberty's progress has been beset by its natural enemies, by ignorance and superstition, by lust of conquest, and by love of ease, by the strong man's craving for power, and the poor man's craving for food. Until next time, take care and be safe.